we're still on the topic of the purification of heart and mind and again it concerns the meditation practice we can see in what I'm going to explain now how our meditation practice automatically purifies naturally we have to also use our daily life for the purification practice but without the automatic purification that we get through concentrated meditation it becomes very difficult to purify to any extent which is noticeable and which is actually significant we can try over and over again but without something to fall back upon a base on which we find ourselves at ease peaceful and happy it is a very difficult undertaking and because of that the concentrated meditation which turns into meditative absorption in Pali jhana j-h-a-n-a is actually a necessary aspect to have our the ease and the joy of the practice if we don't have that it's too often that we can fall away from the practice completely we have all of us have five hindrances they are so to say our birthright we come equipped with them and if we don't do anything about them during this lifetime we will continue having them and probably strengthen them because what we habitually use and connect with becomes strengthened just as mindfulness becomes strengthened if we habitually use it and connect to it however when we find out that these five hindrances make life difficult for us it stands to reason that we will try to do something about them we also have five factors of meditation particularly five factors of meditative absorption which each one counteracts one of the hindrances automatically as I said before and will say again 
it still isn't enough. We still have to work on it during our daily lives. But the support system which we get through the meditative practice is so great that it becomes a joyful task to change our hindrances into something less obstructive and maybe even one day eliminate them. They are very deep-rooted. They've got taproots. And what we are actually doing with them through the meditative factors is cutting them down. We're not uprooting them. We're cutting them down to a manageable size. That manageable size also means that they no longer take out all the nourishment from the soil of our hearts and minds because they are much smaller and therefore less demanding. And also, they do not obstruct the beautiful growth which we have in heart and mind as much as they did before. And by cutting them down over and over again, the weakness that then becomes inherent is also part of their root system. And so they become much easier to uproot. The cutting down of these hindrances, the weeds in our heart and mind, happens through calm and concentration. The uprooting happens through insight. Since these hindrances have been with us for lives immemorial, and since they are part of being a human being, to uproot them is a difficult undertaking. However, if we have the meditation to support us, it becomes still a fair-sized undertaking, but it at least has joy and a foundation to base ourselves on, which makes it so much easier. Joy as an emotion and a mental factor is a necessary part of the spiritual path. It is one of the supports that we need in order to actually meditate. It also becomes then a meditative factor. But it has to be present within the mind so that we can actually sit down at ease and at peace. Joy arises in the mind to a great extent where it is significant and makes a difference when we have gained faith and confidence and have seen that 
that teaching is actually helpful. In other words, we have lost some of our skeptical doubt. When that arises, joy arises for the great opportunity that we have in this life, and then meditation can take off. The factors of meditation which counteract our hindrances start out with one factor which has nothing to do with meditative absorption. It's just a factor of meditation. It's sitting down and doing it. Whether we get concentrated or not, it's not even part of it yet. In Pali, it's Vitaka, which means initial application, which we often compare to hitting the bell. The actual moment of hitting it, which means sitting down, trying to focus on the breath. Now, this initial application counteracts our third hindrance, sloth and torpor, sleepiness, drowsiness, laziness, procrastination. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it in the holidays. I'll do it when it gets warm, when it gets cold, when I have more time, and so on. We know the whole story. Actually sitting down and trying to watch the breath counteracts that effectively. And doing it over and over again, sitting down, doing it again, getting distracted, and then paying attention again, is our antidote for the inbuilt sloth and torpor which every human being has. Now, sloth is physical, torpor is mental. You can call it laziness and drowsiness, drowsiness in the mind, laziness in the body. Obviously, it's generated by the mind. The Buddha compared it to being in prison. When we're in prison, there's nothing we can do. We've got to wait till somebody lets us out again. In this particular prison, we carry the key. We can let ourselves out through continued application, doing it again and again. The mind has many magic tricks. In fact, we often call the mind a magician. And one of its magic tricks is the cop-out. It doesn't want to know about it. It doesn't really want to try so hard. So it gets a bit drowsy. It might even fall asleep. Another thing that happens with the mind when it's supposed to be meditating is the fact that if we haven't been very uh, long at it yet and not well trained, the only instance that we know when the mind is not thinking 
is the moment before falling asleep. So maybe we do get concentrated enough not to think for a moment, so the mind then automatically says, oh, must be bedtime, good night. That's what it's used to. We can't fall asleep while we're thinking, so when we stop thinking, that's the time to fall asleep. You can try it out tonight. You can do it purposely. When you can do it purposely, it will be very helpful for meditation. Tell the mind, stop thinking and see what happens. As soon as it's thinking, no sleep. So we have all these difficulties to contend with and all that will be our support system here our willpower, determination. And that's why I said at the beginning of each meditation, make a determination. Determine to become concentrated. And if you have to, pay attention to the breath a hundred times again and again. It doesn't matter. It still counteracts this drowsy mind the um, foggy mind, the mind that isn't paying attention. The Buddha compared this particular hindrance with a um, little pond which is so muddy that one can't see one's likeness. And it does feel like that. When the mind becomes drowsy, it does feel muddy as if one can't see anything, but also as if it has a sticky quality. Everybody is beset by that hindrance to a more or lesser degree. Some people are lucky and they have it to a lesser degree. Those that have it to a greater degree need to pay more attention to it. But the initial application is the automatic antidote for that. Now in daily life, we may also be beset by that. I'll do it tomorrow. Or I can't be bothered. Or I'm working much too hard, I don't want to do anything extra. Or whatever it may be. There we have to be careful about our priorities. And if we use our time and energy as a manner of service, it's far less tiring and exhausting. If we, whatever it is we may be doing, anything can be construed to be service. And if we do it in that frame of mind that we're trying to serve anyone who may get benefit from it, the energy remains far more buoyant. One of the things that the Buddha talked about as an antidote for this loss and torpor is that we 
know more about the teaching so that we can actually apply some of the words of the Buddha to our own situation and see how and whether it fits. So this particular benefit comes to us just as we sit down and try to concentrate. The second one, which is in Pali Vichara, which means sustained application, is then compared to the sound <laughs> which emanates from the ringing of the bell and continues on. The first one is just hitting the bell. The second one is the sound that continues on. That's a sustained application. The sustained application means we can actually stay on the breath. Now that has a very significant function in our uh, spiritual practice. It counteracts effectively the fifth hindrance, skeptical doubt. Now skeptical doubt can also be called uncertainty, insecurity, lack of confidence, lack of faith. It's sometimes connected to fear. It's particularly concerning our own ability and the validity of the path which we are pursuing. If we're actually able to do what the Buddha said we could, namely stay on the meditation subject, and gain by that the benefit which he promised we would, namely some peacefulness, our doubts about the validity of the instructions vanish. Obviously, the instructions are correct because we can prove it ourselves. The doubts about our own ability also vanish because obviously we can do it. And with those two doubts out of the way, a feeling of confidence arises. Self-confidence, which is very important in any endeavor, but particularly on the spiritual path, where one is left to one's own devices, more or less. The self-confidence that one is not a, uh, incapable of a spiritual practice, but can actually do it. And also the confidence that one can continue because one has now proven to oneself that it's happening. Now this is a very first hurdle which one needs to overcome, particularly at the beginning of meditation practice. Because in the beginning the mind often says, oh, this is really too difficult. And look at all the other people, they're all sitting like little Buddhas, only I can't sit and uh, many other such thoughts where one denigrates oneself 
and thinks everybody else can do it. Later on, if one has practiced a little longer, one becomes aware of the fact that everybody has the same problems, but that still does not eliminate one's own problems. So as soon as we get to the point where we can have personal proof because of our personal experience, we have overcome a great difficulty. The Buddha compared skeptical doubt to traveling in the desert without a road map and without any food or drink and going around in circles and in the end being overrun by bandits because one doesn't know which way one's going. A skeptical doubt is also connected with the inability to commit oneself. People who have little ability to love have little ability to commit themselves <coughs> to something or someone. So skeptical doubt is very, very strong in such people. However, even they, when they can actually concentrate, get over that. A person who finds it easy to love and easy to have faith is a person with far less skeptical doubt. Far easier for such a person to have a wholehearted commitment, even without proof. That often, of course, deteriorates into blind faith. So both sides have their difficulties and also their advantages. Another aspect is that a person that has more greed than hate is a person that finds it easy to have faith. A person who has more hate than greed has far more skeptical doubt. However, again, both have their advantages and their disadvantages. A person who has more greed and therefore finds it much easier to have faith because it is something to hang on to, to get attached to, to cling to. It's much easier to live with, finds it much easier to live with him or herself, has far more enjoyment in this life, sensual enjoyment, but finds it much more difficult to practice because greed doesn't hurt so much. A person who has hate is difficult to live with, finds it difficult to live with him or herself, has far more skeptical doubt, finds it very difficult to have faith, but finds it much easier to practice because they've got so much dukkha, it hurts so much, it's got to be done. So there is a very famous meditation master in the northeast of Thailand who used to have and still has quite a number of Western monks. And he used to say, and maybe still says, I don't know, that he would only like to have monks who have lots of hate. At least they practice. <laughs> of course, to him it didn't matter. He was beyond that because he was said to have been fully enlightened. But we can find in ourselves those tendencies. Now, all of us have both. 
but each one has just a little more of one or the other. So we can find out in ourselves which one we belong to and see where it is easier for us to practice and use those faculties that we have to support the <coughs> practice. Do not deny those faculties. Do not um, think that they are not valuable. They are. But try to cultivate the others that are lacking. The uh, pond that uh, was compared by the Buddha by, to one in which many water uh, plants were growing and it was so full of them that one couldn't see one's likeness. When we have doubt, all we can see is the doubt. We can't see anything else anymore. And particularly in the beginning of practice, this doubt uh, sends one from one thing that one thinks might be helpful to another. And um, instead of climbing up this mountain that I spoke about, in one continuous uh, pathway, one tries to go around the mountain from one pathway to the next. Counterproductive, of course, and uh, very common and uh, understandable. But as soon as the meditation practice has come together to the point where we can actually do it for at least something like, what, 10 or 15 minutes, then that doubt vanishes. The doubt in the kind of practice, the kind of instruction, the kind of teaching, the great teacher, the Buddha, and the doubt in one's own faculties, one's own abilities. This is damaging when we have those self-doubts. First of all, it is also connected to ego, but it has a blame connected with it also. It has a dislike with it, a disliking of oneself. And this dislike makes it much harder to practice. In fact, it can stop the practice completely. So the first two are Vitaka Vichara, <clears throat> initial and sustained application, which counteract sloth and torpor and the skeptical doubt. Now, after the sustained application comes that, what I've already been mentioning, the moment when the breath becomes so fine that we can either hardly or not at all find it, and it arises that which in Pali is called piti, P-I-T-I, pleasant sensation, called rapture or bliss, interest. It can be strong, it can be mild, it can be anything in between. And this has a function which is of the utmost importance in our emotional makeup. It isn't just a pleasant sensation, although it's that too. But we're not meditating for pleasant sensations, are we? Although it's quite nice to have them. 
But the function that it has is it counteracts our hate, our dislike, our ill will. Because it is impossible to have ill will or dislike when we are filled with pleasant sensations. Now that applies to the moment when we are meditating. However, this has a residue. The residue stays in the mind. First of all, those people that have practiced this for some time can arouse a pleasant sensation at will, any time, under all circumstances, in a bus, in a train, wherever. But that's not its greatest significance even those that can't do that. The mind knows that when one sits down again for meditation, it can be in a pleasant state. The um, PT will be able, we will be able to arouse the PT again and therefore have a sensation, an experience which is very much something we would like to have, far superior to sensual desires and sensual gratifications and something which is not dependent upon outer conditions. It's strictly dependent upon the inner condition. Now, that residue stays in the mind, that one knows one can go back to it. And by knowing that, all that what confronts one during the day, all the unpleasantness or the stress and the strain and the hurry and the hustle and the bustle, remains the same but doesn't impinge as much anymore. It doesn't hit one as much anymore because the mind knows it can have a pleasant abiding. The Buddha used the word abiding for meditation very often. I like to compare that to having a shelter if we didn't have a shelter for our body, a roof over our head, when we come home from work or wherever we've been, we would be quite perturbed. We would be homeless. Homelessness is difficult to take for most people. One is subject to the difficulties of the weather, the climate. One is constantly subject to heat, cold, wind, rain, and so on. But we have a shelter, we have a home for the body where we go and are very comfortable. We have a nice armchair, a nice bed, a kitchen with all the good food in it. We've got everything for the body. So we set the body down in the armchair and offer it 
a nice TV dinner or something even better than that. <laughs> and what does the mind do? Does it have a shelter? Is it totally at peace and at ease? Or is it still rummaging around, trying to relive all the unpleasantness that happened during the day and that may be happening the next day? Or is it trying to plan how to get out of them? Or what is the mind doing? In order to get a shelter for the mind, we have to have that home that the mind finds within when it has learned to concentrate. Concentrate to the extent where it no longer has to think, but can start experiencing. And here it experiences a very, very pleasant sensation, which is all-pervading, which the Buddha compared to something like filling a sponge with water until the sponge is totally drenched. We can be totally drenched with that feeling. And as we know that we have that home to go to, we feel at ease and secure because it is there for us to enter into. So this is a residue that stays in the mind even outside of meditation. And because of that, it is much easier for us to reduce our ill will if we practice continuously. If we do this every day, our ill will will not be eliminated. Ill will is only eliminated at the um, third stage of enlightenment. So you can imagine what kind of ill will is rampant in the world for people who don't even know what it means to practice. And then those few that do practice and haven't attained any enlightenment yet, I mean, ill will is rampant. It exists everywhere. And it sometimes takes very ugly forms, very aggressive forms. But we should never be surprised at it part and parcel of being a human being. However, here, when we have this ability, which is strictly dependent upon some concentration, it doesn't even have to be perfect concentration, just some concentration, and a certain ease of mind with which one sits down in order to concentrate, a very upset mind cannot concentrate. That's why I'm always advocating, please give yourself some loving kindness at the beginning of each sit or anything that will help to calm the mind down. So if we have that as a base, this pleasantness, then the ill will, which is rampant everywhere, which every one of us has, becomes much less automatically because there is this inner feeling of a pleasant abiding. It doesn't disappear even outside of meditation completely. 
not that this particular sensation remains, but the pleasant abiding remains. doesn't mean that we have eliminated ill will at, uh, completely, but we could say that possibly we have brought it down to irritation rather than anger and fury, which is a great accomplishment. The Buddha compared ill will to a bilious disease, the bile is coming up. He also said that the one who gets angry can be compared to a person who is picking up hot coals with their bare hands and trying to throw them at somebody else. Naturally, the one who gets burned first is the one who picks up the hot coals. And then if the other person is clever enough to duck, the whole exercise was for nothing. We also can learn to duck. To duck means non-reaction. He compared the water pond to one where the wind is blowing so hard that the waves are so high that one can't see one's likeness. The uh, ordinary everyday antidote for ill will is described by him as loving-kindness meditation and loving-kindness action. In other words, we need to not only do this meditation, but try to actualize it. Whether we feel anything in particular or not doesn't really matter. This is a practice part. We can't wait till we love the whole world. It's never going to happen. We can just do it in order to practice and become aware of what it feels like when we do a kindness to someone else. The loving-kindness meditation directs the mind in the right direction. And if we then follow through with an action, particularly where we find it difficult, we are purifying in daily life. It's much easier to do that in daily life when we know our own dukkha and are therefore aware of the dukkha in everybody else. Whatever we know in ourselves is pictured and mirrored in everybody else. And yet, without the ability to have this meditative foundation, it is so difficult to have no ill will, as everybody who has ever been mindful and introspective should and would know. These are factors which arise out of some concentration. Anyone, everyone, can do it. But we have another benefit, not just that one, there's another one. 
And the benefits are so great that it would be really a great loss if we were not to practice this way. The benefit is also that obviously this pleasant feeling, pleasant sensation, rapture, disappears again when the meditation is finished. And we can watch its dissolution. Watching the dissolution of a pleasant feeling and recognizing and realizing that all that we'd like to keep must disappear. Nothing can be kept. Brings a deeper dimension to our understanding of impermanence. Impermanence as a statement is not enough. It doesn't really have enough impact on us. But impermanence as an experience, particularly when the pleasantness disappears, does have impact. It shows us quite clearly there's nothing we can hang on to as much as we'd like to because it's so pleasant we'd like to keep it no way the meditation does finish the residue which is there which I've spoken does not have the same kind of sensation it's a residue of knowing in the mind impermanence of that which is pleasant has a much greater impact as impermanence of that which is unpleasant. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. If one has knee pains or back pains and one's sitting with them and the bell rings, the mind cannot help but be relieved and say, oh, thank God that's over. Impermanence doesn't even have any significance then. It's great that it's over, which is part of desire. Actually, I've been wanting to have it over all, all the time, but now finally it has been over. So it doesn't really have that kind of inner recognition of impermanence. But when the pleasantness disappears and the mind is not inclined to say, as it would at first. Oh, what a pity, I'd like to have it back. But the mind actually watches how this pleasantness disappears. Then it may gain a new perspective. It's a new dimension which is enlarged, an enlarged dimension of impermanence. The automatic purification system built in to the five factors of the concentrated meditation can never be substituted with anything else. It's the only thing that will do that for us, the automatic way. The other way is the hard way. We have to do both naturally. But when we have this opportunity and possibility to ease our path, 
it becomes not only more interesting, more joyful, easier, becomes quicker because it flows. It's as if we have had oiled the wheels. And this is one of the, uh, funnily enough, mistaken views that it takes longer if one practices the meditative absorptions. It's quicker because the whole pathway has no longer those thorns and um, those um, crevices into which one falls, but it has the ease of moving along. Now, simultaneously with this pleasant feeling arises an emotional happiness. But because the pleasant physical feeling is much stronger in impact, it is not so much noted separate from the pleasant sensation. But it is a fact that when one sits with a pleasant sensation, one can only be happy. It's impossible to be unhappy. It's just not in our makeup. So this happiness which arises at the same time counteracts restlessness and worry. Restlessness is our reaction to not having what we want. We need to go somewhere or do something or um, think of something or um, make a plan or remember something in the past because we are not satisfied with what we've got. So we want to go somewhere and get something. Naturally, when we have pleasant feelings and, and worry has its root in our mental formations which are concerning mostly the future. Will I be able to get what I want? And if I do get it, will I be able to keep it? In this case, there's nothing to get what one wants and there's nothing to keep because it just is. If one starts thinking about any of that, it disappears and just is there with it. So restlessness and worry are very effectively counteracted during this meditation. They are also a residue, they also have a residue because having known this happy state, what they're to worry about. So it is. And so it remains if one keeps on meditating. The restlessness is greatly diminished. It's not by any means eliminated. Restlessness is only eliminated for the fully enlightened one. It's interesting, isn't it? Even when one is almost enlightened, one still has restlessness. But it is of course, somewhat 
diminished because one has found something of such value as if one had been digging for a jewel and had finally come across it. So that the search for happiness, the search for sensual gratification in order to bring happiness is diminished. It's not eliminated. The search for sensual gratification is eliminated, totally eliminated, on the third stage of enlightenment, before full enlightenment. However, because of all these benefits, we have, of course, more purity. We have also more insight. And this is an interesting aspect of the meditative absorption, which are strictly for calm, tranquility. But because we have gained access to an inner happiness at that time, which may not be that clear in the first instant, I will talk about the next steps where it becomes clearer at another time. But we have access to it. We also realize, if we put our attention on it, that nothing in the world that has ever been given to us, that we've ever attained or got, that we could ever think of getting, could compare in satisfaction and fulfillment to this inner state. That insight alone makes it possible to continue the spiritual path and makes it possible to find one's priorities. Because if one doesn't find one's priorities on the spiritual path, the only option we have is sensual gratification. We have no other options. Sensual gratification is also mental gratification. It's also one of the senses. We only have those two options. There's nothing else. We either do it through the senses or we do it through our own inner purity. So not only do we get what we want, some happiness and pleasant sensations, but we also gain an a foothold on a foundation of spiritual evolution which will eventually eliminate our greed for sensual gratification. These senses with which we are beset are of course our means for survival but they are also our greatest temptation. We can call all of them, whatever happens, Mara, which is the tempter. Beautiful sunset, lovely flowers. What's wrong with them? Nothing. They're gorgeous. But they give us the idea that if we do it right, if we just eliminate one of those quirks that we've got or that somebody else has, we'll be fine. Everything is going to work out perfectly. 
because what could be wrong in a world with beautiful sunsets and lovely flowers and nice ice cream? It doesn't work. The sunset disappears, the flowers wilt, and the ice cream dissolves, melts. Having seen that through one's own experience is a totally different story from just hearing about it. Having seen it in one's own meditation, it makes life look entirely different. And it makes the priorities come out clearly and in sharp distinction. A sukha happiness, which counteracts restlessness and worry, the, um, this one was compared by the Buddha to being a slave. If we get caught in restlessness or in worry, we no longer have any jurisdiction over our thought processes. We're just restless or worried. So we're a slave to them and we're being pushed around by them. We are not a master of the situation. He compared the water pond to one which was where there was a hot spring underneath and the water is churning with heated water. It's a heated situation in our emotions. The antidote in daily life is learning more about the Dhamma, about the teaching, and association with wise and mature people. Now, interestingly enough, all five hindrances have one antidote in common, namely, noble friends and noble conversation. But this one, the fourth, which is the fourth one, fourth hindrance, in addition has association with wise and mature people. Noble friends are a topic for itself because it is considered by the Buddha of the utmost importance on any spiritual path. The right kind of people around one. They need not be learned. They need not be wealthy or important. They need not be interesting. They just need to be noble. Nobility in heart and mind. That nobility connotes purity, And it also has an aspect of self-examination and self-discipline. If that is present in a person, their purification process is working. And those kinds of people can be helpful. 
because they show one which way is the right way. They also are an, a model to emulate. So here it's not only noble friends, and I will speak about noble friends once more at another time, because there's more to that, to them than that. Um, here it's also mentioned wise and mature people. Maturity, again, has nothing to do with age. Maturity is a mind state which has come about through experience, the understood experience. Now, people can live a long time and never understand their experiences. It's wisdom. So you can see from that alone just those few words on friends and the people we associate with, how important the Buddha thought it was the whom we are connected with, with whom we spend our time. The um, last one, the fifth one of the factors, and all of these factors of meditation arise in the first absorption, in the first jhana, The last one is one-pointedness. Now, obviously, one-pointedness is something that is necessary even when you meditate and have momentary concentration. When it's momentary, it's not long enough to make a difference. It vanishes too quickly. But when it remains one-pointed, while the attention is on the pleasant feeling, the sensation coupled with happiness. The two are intermingled in the first absorption. At that time, it counteracts very effectively our desire for sensual gratification. If we are one-pointedly absorbed, There's nothing else we could possibly want. And the interesting aspect is that at that time, the body consciousness does not exist, and therefore the aches and pains have disappeared at that time, for the time being. They all come back, of course. But for the time being, they're not there. So there's no desire to sit differently, to have more comfort, or anything of that nature. There's no desire to have food or drink. There's no desire to have it warmer or colder. None of that, because the one-pointed concentration on the piti and the sukha, the pleasant sensation and the happiness, prevents one from going out towards sensual gratification. that has a very strong residue and the one I've already mentioned that if we have already experienced something which is far better than any sensual gratification that we can possibly get our desire for the sensual gratification 
will diminish. And as we diminish our desire, we open up time and energy for our spiritual practice. We no longer spend so much time or so much energy or so much thought on getting sensual gratification. We we have far more left over for more important things. And this is one of the great benefits of the residue of that one-pointedness. The Buddha compared the desire for sensual gratification with being in debt. Now, if you've got a mortgage, you've got to go to the bank, and of course nowadays one doesn't even go to the bank. The bank has to take off some money from one's account every month with interest. If one is lucky, one might pay that off before one dies. Now, with the desire for sensual gratification, there is no such luck. Either one practices to eliminate the desire or one keeps it going even on one's deathbed. The debt is never paid off. And we pay with interest because we have to renew the payment all the time. We can't keep the gratification. It's impossible to keep what tastes good, sounds good, looks good, smells good, or feels good. We've got to renew it. So we are constantly in debt to our senses. Now, if we've ever thought it was foolish to have a large mortgage that costs us a lot of money in interest and seems to never get paid off, how much more foolish is it to be in debt to one's own senses? There's no comparison in foolishness. Much better to have two mortgages. The um, the water pond was compared by the Buddha to one into which many colors had been thrown so that it was very colorful, but one couldn't see one's likeness. Sensual desire, when it has actually taken hold of oneself, prevents one from seeing whether that what one desires is actually worthwhile desiring. One can't even distinguish that anymore. But because it's so colorful, it appears to be worthwhile. And the antidote in daily living that the Buddha prescribed was to make an analytical assessment of what the object or subject actually consists of so that our desire becomes either eliminated or lessened. The analytical assessment, for instance, when it is a person 
we can analyze ourselves, put ourselves into our various parts, and see whether we're actually craving for somebody's hair or kidneys or big toe or tip of the nose or whatever else we might think of. And if it's an object, we could analyze to see whether this object is not going to fall apart and disappear, need care and concern to keep it clean, keep it repaired, to keep it in some order, which will then eventually require replacement. So that the object itself loses some of its attraction because it too is impermanent and also contains all the aspects of extra worry and extra attention. This will help sometimes. It will not be unfeelingly remove our desires, but it at least gives us an opportunity to stand back and take another look. However, if we are able to have that much concentration, just that much concentration, to get into the first absorption, which is contains these five factors, the whole perspective changes completely. doesn't mean we lose all our desires for sensual gratification, but we will be far more careful with them. We will examine them and very often desist from them because we know that the result will not be satisfactory, the gratification will not be satisfactory, and has no comparison to what we can gain in meditation. This purification of heart and mind, while it isn't the goal yet, as you may remember, we've got seven relay coaches in which we have to travel in each one of them. It is an absolute essential part of that journey. The journey takes us from where we are now to the ease and peacefulness of no longer being concerned about this one single individual. Seeing the world as it really is, moving, changing, contracting, expanding, arising, eventually ceasing, coming to life again without any individuality to be found anywhere. All phenomena. 
the pathway has to be joyful. If it isn't, one has to admire those people who stay on it. And there are some who do, but most of them don't. We are so constituted that we do the things that we like. And if we can like our spiritual practice, how lucky can we get? So you can ask some questions if you like. very unfortunate, isn't it? Yes. Um, <laughs> um, yes. The, uh, you see, it's like this. And I will explain that in detail at another time. But you know very well that we have stream entry, once returner, non-returner, arahant, okay? Uh, once returner, second step, only diminishes greed and hate doesn't eliminate. Okay, only the non-returner eliminates greed and hate. So, what to say? I don't know what these people are. I mean, maybe they're once-returners. Who knows? Maybe they're stream-enters, but they're, they're still angry, you know. Um, the uh, Yes, you're quite right. It's a safety valve. Uh, the uh, loving-kindness meditation needs to be practiced in conjunction with everything else. If one doesn't practice loving-kindness meditation one doesn't direct the mind in that direction. It's not a natural thing to think all the time, I need to love everybody. I mean, who thinks like that? Most people have never heard of such a thought, although they were probably, when they were little, going to Sunday school, where they were taught, love thy neighbor as thyself, but they've long forgotten that. So if we don't practice loving-kindness meditation, we're very apt to forget the whole business about this. Um, purification system that we have within. So it is very, um, it is a very um, important aspect. It doesn't necessarily mean that we become loving yet, but it certainly brings us in that neighborhood. And then when we're in the right neighborhood, it's more likely that we behave according to the neighborhood we're staying in. So if there are quite a number of, um, I think, of um, methods where loving-kindness meditation is not practiced, and uh, that's unfortunate. I think maybe the, that might change.
Do you feel alone or do you feel lonely? You feel lonely, right? Um, that is not uncommon uh, on uh, for spiritual practitioners, and um, I always um, explain it like this: that we actually go against the stream. Most people go with the stream. And uh, when we go against the stream, obviously there are fewer people there. So one of the things that one can do is join a meditation group. If you live in an area where there are groups that meditate together, get together on once a week, and you have at least a group support. You don't feel that you're the only one in the whole city that does this because you can see there are others doing it. And out of that, sometimes friendships do arise. Um, They don't need to be so strong that you're together all the time. The one important thing to get noble friends and have noble conversations with them one of the things that the Buddha had in mind there was a meditation teacher. But of course, the meditation teachers uh, that I know are all very busy and you can't constantly talk to them. But at least to have a connection where you can have some sort of um, communication, even if it isn't constant, it's not uncommon to be lonely on a spiritual path. It's um, far more common than the other. And one of the things that we can think of then is that it is also helpful. To be alone can be very helpful if we use our time in a productive manner. So productive meaning that we meditate, read the Buddha's words or any spiritual master's words and try to see what that means for us. We can visit spiritual centers, that type of thing. And that would probably be more fulfilling than just having social contact. In fact, it would certainly be more fulfilling. And work as service. Well, it's a mental attitude. It doesn't matter what one does. One of my um, most beloved spiritual teachers is St. Teresa de Avila. And uh, I just love the way she taught her nuns. One of the things she said was, I don't want another holy nun. I want one that's going to clean the toilets. as service, spiritual endeavor. Mind you, I've said the same thing. But um, it doesn't always work. People think cleaning toilets is not as good as, for instance, teaching meditation. I can assure you, they're both equally good. It's your mind state that matters. So if you know, for instance, that there are 20 people going to use this toilet and you make it nice and clean for them, and you think, now, I'm really helping these people to feel well here. 
because this is a nice thing for them then to come in here. It's that service and that spiritual way of using work. Now, naturally, not everybody cleans toilets, but there are many other things that we do, chopping up carrots or whatever it may be. When we think that we're doing it in order to help another or another or many others, then it becomes a um, an offering out of generosity of the heart. Livelihood. It, sorry, I didn't catch all that. Well, in terms of right livelihood. Yes. So how do you combine right livelihood and service? Right. Um, well, what I was trying to say was that it doesn't matter what you do. Anything can be service. The, the, the garbage man that picks up the garbage with the garbage truck, if he doesn't... Uh, think of how quickly he can get uh, finished with it, but thinks that he's doing a great service for these people, getting rid of the garbage, and uh, that he's happy that he's cleaning the place up so that people can live without um, fear of sickness, then he's doing a service. But if he thinks, how quickly can I get out of this and get home again and watch the TV and get my beer, well, at that time, of course, he's not doing a service, he's just doing a job. But right livelihood means that we do something that doesn't hurt anybody. It's a kind of job that doesn't hurt anybody. But any job can be service. Anything. And when one does it in that way, it's not a chore. It's not something unpleasant. It's not something we have to get finished with. It's not something that is taking up our time. It's part life as we live it and it's just as satisfying as anything else now so of course there are service um, professions but even they can be uh, executed without service so it's all a state of mind All right, everything quite clear about the first meditative absorption, I hope. <laughs> yes? Hmm? Supposing there is trust, there is faith, there is deep knowledge that this is the only way, the only game in town. Now, that's a matter of practice. And if, uh, if the concentration is not um, happening, 
then one has to use the insight methods. A little bit of insight brings a little bit of concentration, and a little bit of concentration brings a little bit of insight. And uh, it's a matter of practice to calm the mind down. The longer one has already used the mind in its usual manner of constantly thinking and evaluating, the harder it is to calm it down, to become quiet. But eventually it does. Everybody has the ability to do it. It takes longer for some people. Some people can do it very easily. It's um, karmic resultants of some sort. And if it isn't possible to calm it, then we use insight. It's all fine too. Look into your heart and see whether there's any ill will, upset, worry, fear, restlessness, rejection, dislike, anything that feels heavy. Let it all float away like black clouds in the sky, which they are. And then look into your heart again. Become aware of its empty spaciousness. Which is filled with the purity of love. Fill yourself completely from head to toe with love and compassion and surround yourself with these. As if you were wrapped in a beautiful white cloud And now fill the person nearest you from head to toe with love and compassion coming from the purity of your heart. Surrounding that person with the white cloud of love giving a sense of well-being and security.
reach out to everyone here. Fill everyone with your love and your compassion. From the purity of your heart. Embracing everyone with these feelings. Think of all the people who are near and dear to you. Let your heart reach out to them. Fill them with your love and compassion without expecting to receive the same. Think of all your good friends. Let them arise before your mind's eye and fill them all from head to toe with love and compassion, embracing them, not expecting any return. Think of all the people you know, acquaintances, let them arise before your mind's eye, let your heart reach out to them, 
pure heart that can love and feel compassion, filling them, surrounding them with these feelings. Think of anyone with whom you have some difficulty and let the purity of your heart speak with love and compassion, filling and surrounding that person with your feelings, forgetting all differences. Open your heart as wide as you can and let love and compassion flow from it to people near and far. Those that live around here in the houses in this area, let your love and compassion flow like a golden stream into their houses, into their hearts and then further afield to people who live further away in Oakland, in Berkeley, in San Francisco, in the small towns, the villages, and the metropolis. Let it reach out further and further to people in the whole state of California, thinking of them here and there, 